Close your eyes. You wake up in a bare white room. Seated in a reclining chair, you feel the cool, cold steel of a contraption on your head. A voice from a loudspeaker bellows into the room. The year is 2659. The life with which you are familiar is an experienced machine program selected by you some 40 years ago. We at IEM interrupt our clients' programs at 10-year intervals to ensure client satisfaction. Our records indicate that at your three previous interruptions, you deemed your program satisfactory and chose to continue. As before, if you choose to continue with your program, you will return to your life as you know it with no recollection of this interruption. Your friends, loved ones, and projects will all be there. Of course, you may choose to terminate your program at this point if you are unsatisfied. Do you intend to continue with your program? Hey, hey, water coolians. Welcome back to another simulation of water cooler talk. Today on the show, we have Felipe de Brigard. Felipe studies the intersection of memory and imagination at Duke University. Uh, just just an overall incredibly thoughtful and wise individual with with always, always a good story to tell. Uh, it was one of those conversations where I was able to just sit back and soak in the rays of his knowledge. Uh, extremely fun conversation for me. And one of the bigger topics we focused on throughout the episode was nostalgia, especially with many of us having these nostalgic moments of a time outside of COVID, whether that be large family gatherings, concert with friends, if you're from the US, a well-organized government, uh, being able to go to a new movie, having a job, it's important that we understand the why behind those moments. Why does watching a favorite old movie bring me warmth? Why do I listen to the Spotify playlist songs to sing in the shower more often outside of the shower? Who needs a playlist of new music? By the way, finally received my Selena Gomez album, if anyone is curious. And as we trek into another month of limited experiences because of a pandemic, how does our mind remember experiences of old to give us comfort? To give us feelings of nostalgia for a moment we remember to be better than it was. Did we really all love high school as much as we thought? Debatable. Why we think what we think is a conversation that will never go stale. Society is enthralled with how the mind works. Take serial killers and true crime for an example. Movies like Memento, Inception, Tenet, Christopher Nolan, basically. So I'll ask again. Do you intend to continue with your program? In the episode, we discuss the reasoning of nostalgia and why an individual may decide to watch The Office over and over and over again, even though there are so many new shows being released. Don't get me wrong. Don't, don't send them the hate emails. The Office is a great show when Steve Carell was the driving vehicle. I will continue to say it until the end of my times. And I want everyone to say it with me. The Office is not a personality. Once again, The Office is not a personality. And then we have a conversation about the Second Amendment, Little Red Riding Hood packing heat, and how governments use propaganda and false memories to rewrite our own personal histories. So, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, this is Water Cooler Talk, episode 45, titled The Power of Imagination with Felipe de Brigard. Enjoy. This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not because they're real. All right, before we start our conversation on these strange and interesting news stories of the world, I want to get your ratings on a few puns. I've heard around the block you're, you're a pun aficionado. So if you'll indulge me on rating these handful of puns on a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 obviously being a puntastical pun. Okay. So this is the first pun. A chicken crossing the road is true poultry in motion. Uh, oh, God. That's a five. <laughs> <laughs> I went to a seafood disco last week and pulled a muscle. Uh, that is a four. <laughs> uh, this one by Douglas Adams. You can tune a guitar, but you can't tune a fish. Unless, of course, you play bass. Uh, that, that one is a classic. Uh, so I will give it a seven just for being a classic, not for being good. <laughs> All right, and we have two more. The other day I held the door open for a clown... I thought it was a nice jester. Oh, good. Uh, seven. Uh, I think that, that real pun aficionados wouldn't give it a seven, but I am also <laughs> a dad, so I give it a seven. <laughs> it's it's dad worthy. I love yeah, it. And then totally. the last one by Mark Twain. Denial? Ain't just a river in Egypt. Oh, 
I will give it a 10 because it's Mark Twain, one of my <laughs> absolute favorite authors. All right. Well, thank you for indulging in some puns with me. Are you ready to jump into our first news story? Absolutely. On repeat, why people watch movies and shows over and over. This is from The Atlantic Culture, September 10th, 2014. Going back to the same pop culture fair for seconds, thirds, and thirteenths isn't so abnormal. Forget the next big thing, we're all suckers for the last big thing. Musicologists estimate that for every hour of music listening in a typical person's lifetime, 54 minutes are spent with songs we've already heard. The question of why do people do the same thing over and over has entranced philosophers, anthropologists, economists, and psychologists for centuries upon centuries. But when Christelle Antonia Russell and Sidney Levy from American University in Washington, D.C. published their findings on the matter in an August 2012 journal Consumer Research, they found that those interviewed who had reread a book, rewatched a movie, or revisited a sentimental site did so for specific reasons. In summary of their research, Russell and Levy found four reasons for this behavior. The first reason, the simple reason. Someone may just really like a movie. In addition, psychologists have found that repetition breeds affection. Familiar content requires less mental energy to process, and when something is easy to think about, we tend to consider it to be more likable. Then there's the nostalgic reason, using entertainment as a time machine to revisit a lost memory. The concept of rewatching the same movie, TV show, or listening to the same song over and over again can give us a feeling of being loved and that life is worth living. Then there's the therapeutic reason, watching a certain movie because we know how it ends and how that will make us feel. One study on nostalgia found that it offered physical comfort in the form of warmth, as cold temperatures are more likely to trigger our need for nostalgic moments, and that nostalgia is a predominantly positive and social emotion. And then finally, there's the existential reason, an old memory overlaid with a new perspective. Russell and Levi stated in their research, re-engaging with the same object, even just once, allows a reworking of experiences as consumers consider their own particular enjoyments and understandings of choices they have made. Felipe, you have many years focused on the study of memory and imagination, and with that obviously comes nostalgia. Do you agree with the reasons stated in the articles on why people watch movies and shows over and over again? Um, when I read the article, I thought that all those were probably valid reasons as to why people listen or watch, uh, like listen the same song over and over again, or watch the same movie over and over again. But I thought that there was a possible fifth reason that was not included in that list. And the reason does not come from my research, but it actually comes from the research of psychologist and neurobiologist Robert Sapolsky, the guy who wrote the book of why zebras don't feel stress. And, uh, and as I ha it happens with lots of my attempted explanations, it comes with an anecdote. So when I was in grad school, I went to listen to uh, a talk by Robert Sapolsky at the National um, Humanities Center in, in, in Durham. He was talking about critical periods. So we know that there are critical periods for learning a language, for instance. The reason why I have an accent is because I learned English after I passed my critical period, and then I'm not going to be able to get rid of an accent, which has good and bad consequences. Mm -hmm. But there are critical periods for for uh, a number of different things, right? So there is a point in which uh, if you don't learn how to play an instrument by a certain age, you presumably are never going to be a virtuoso. And then he started wondering, what if there are critical periods for other things like food? What if, if you have never been exposed to broccoli until you're like 18 years of age is you're never going to develop a taste for broccoli just because you missed the critical period. And then he wonder about music. What if there is a critical period in which if you have never been exposed to that kind of music, you're just never going to like it? Never. He started pseudoscientifically. I don't think that he did much more of a, like a super scientific study for this, uh, but he started like to sort of think about what critical periods for different kinds of items could be. And he hypothesized that uh, critical periods for music were something around 30 years of age. And I was not 30 at the time, but I was like 28 or so when, when I heard this talk. And I went like, this is nuts. I need to listen to every possible music because <laughs> I don't want to turn 30 and go like, I don't like rap because uh, I missed my critical period. Mm -hmm. So during those two years, I engaged in this project of listening to as many possible wacky kinds of music that you can think of. What if I end up not liking music, not because it's bad music or because I have a, a bad static judgment toward the music, but because I missed the critical period. And out of that, for instance, I ended up liking quite a bit 
bluegrass, which I've never heard of before. And I now I can listen to bluegrass very, very happily and really enjoy it. So I would add that as a possible fifth reason. Would it be possible for that critical period to change? Like you mentioned broccoli. Growing up, we ate broccoli and cauliflower unseasoned and steamed. So it wasn't it wasn't good. But then later in life, being able to enjoy broccoli and cauliflower seasoned correctly and cooked correctly, would that switch that critical period? Yeah, it, I think it is possible to do Similar things happened to me. I never liked eggplant when I was growing up. It turns out that it's not that I didn't like eggplant, it's that I didn't like the way in which the eggplant was cooked at home. There is that component as well. I don't think, I, I think with you that those critical periods might be movable, just as is, as with languages. You can still le- learn another language that you picked up when you're older, but it's going to require a little bit more effort. Okay, yeah. It becomes a, an, an issue of cost benefit. Am I really willing to put the effort to like this kind of music? Am I really willing to put the effort to like this kind of food? Or am I just going to go to the stuff that comes easily to me because it's stuff I liked prior to the end of that critical period. Well, yeah, and I'd imagine your preferences changes, you know, like, oh, I've been spending time with this group, so my preferences are more likely to like this type of music than that type of music. Mm -hmm. Exactly. As now, you know, we're sitting in what feels like a lifetime into many of ours first global pandemic. It's crazy. I I saw a story the other day about someone who's lived through COVID-19 and the Spanish flu in 1918, Mm -hmm. which started in Kansas, by the way. Spain was just the first country to report it being an issue. So many of us during these times are resorting to old movies, TV shows, and music to find comfort. How does that balance valence of nostalgia create comfort in times of uncertainty? Great. So this is something I have been thinking quite a bit about in the last uh, few years. Just as I am a pun aficionado, I am a nostalgia aficionado. I, it, is, <laughs> it is one of my absolute favorite uh, feelings. I started sort of doing what philosophers call research, which just basically means sitting and reading a lot in part because I was very interested in cultural differences for nostalgia. Nostalgia is a term that is very important in different cultures, but I was very surprised by the fact that people could feel nostalgia about different things. So I got really interested about all these views of nostalgia and how how nostalgia is is varied across different cultures, but it's also very universal. People really feel this sort of attachment to what they think is is in the past. And I think that part of the reason, and just to go back to the original question, part of the reason is because we like feelings that are not fully pleasurable and not fully sad. There is something very interesting about the emotional exchange between the happiness of the time that was and the sadness of not having it now. Just feel, you know, this interaction, this sort of bittersweet state is a state that can be enjoyable. It might have been maybe one of your colleagues, but they talked about how when people look back on memories, they tend to look back on the positives and they tend to change those memories to be positive. And, you know, I can see from the nostalgic point of view, it's like, oh, something in the past, that was awesome, man. That was loving it. But if you really go back in the past and look at like the cold, hard facts, it may not be that way. Mm -hmm. So I think people tend to, you know, really preference towards, I want something that makes me feel good. And that's why they may revisit these old movies and TV shows and music. Yeah, I know. Absolutely. So one thing that that we need to remember is that you know, memories are about the past, but we carry our memories with us at the present. So it's not that we only remember certain, you know, isolated occasions. Memories are the sorts of things that come to our mind constantly. When we gather with friends, you know, pre-COVID or maybe through Zoom now, <laughs> there is a lot of joint reminiscing. Think about reunions. You Americans love doing this college reunion. Mm-hmm. And what do they do in this college reunions? Do you, they go and plan things for the future? No, they sit and they reminisce. Reminiscing and remembering individually and together is an absolutely essential part of who we are as people. Well, yeah, and I think you've mentioned, you know, high school wasn't the greatest time of your life, but I would imagine most people, when they talk back about high school, they look at it fondly, mm-hmm. even though, you know, I, I had a good time in high school, but I I mean, I've had a better time out of high school. People look back at high school as those golden days, even though they may have not had the best time in high school. Yes, absolutely. And we are pickers and choosers of our memories as well. Imagine this possible scenario. So you have two possibilities to remember peaks of happiness in your high school or only remember 
the 45 minutes of each calculus and chemistry exam that you had to take. That is not <laughs> how you want to remember high school at all. Yeah. In fact, if you were to just look at the numbers of the times that you were miserable in high school and the times that you were really very happy in high school, presumably the times that were miserable are going to outgrade those that you were happy. But you remember the ones that you were happy. I would never want to go back to high school. And I bet that a lot of people that really remember high school as being like awesome would not be very happy going back to it. <laughs> exactly. Well, and then, I mean, that kind of brings up this idea of uh, anime. Yes, anemone, yeah. Uh, ha- having nostalgia for a time we've never known. For me personally, you know, I use media as an escape. You know, I rewatch episodes of Scrubs or Psych because, you know, I enjoy the friendships in those shows. I enjoy, you know, them working at a hospital or solving crimes. I've never worked in a hospital or solved a crime, but I still find comfort in that. So, you know, why why do these memories that aren't ours give us comfort? Great. That's a great question. And it sort of harks back to the core of my research uh, since I first started thinking about memory, which is the fact that memory and imagination are really not super separated, right? So we have this view from philosophy that memory and imagination are entirely different faculties. And the reason for that, one of them is uh, what they call the factivity constraint, which is the thought that the the verb to remember can only uh, refer to things that actually were the case. It's like knowledge. You cannot say of the people in the 13th century that they knew that the earth was flat. Rather, they ignore that it was round. So knowledge can only be about things that are the case, that are true. Likewise, philosophers think that to remember is also factive. So when you say, oh, I remember that, you know, I had a red car or whatever, you can only say that truthfully if it is the case that you had a red car. And the thought is, well, if you say that you remember something that was not the case, then what happens is that you're actually imagining it. Mm-hmm. But this is very complicated because we all have had false memories. I have yet to find a single individual that has never had a false memory. I was profoundly interested in false memories when I first started doing research on 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 memory. And then it turns out a lot of my research as well as the research of others just basically point that the best explanation as to why this has uh, we have these false memories is that really our faculty of imagination and our faculty of remembering are, are profoundly intertwined. Imagining things that might happen in the future in our in our life, or imagining things that could have occurred in our past, they tend to engage much of the same neural and cognitive mechanisms by means of which we remember the past. And basically, the thought is that when you remember, you bring to mind, or you actually you reconstruct out of building blocks a mental simulation, if you want, or I call a mental content toward which you have a feeling of remembrance. Now, that content could be, you know, cobbled together from pieces that actually were from separate episodes or maybe stuff that you have read and you have have put together. Mm -hmm. You know, most of the time, I don't know, if you're playing Dungeons and Dragons or something like that, you're creating this mental content and you do aim for those mental contents to be imaginative. You're never thinking like, oh, I remember when I run into this green dragon and I slayed. No, that that clearly is an imagination. But there is this this gray area or this this sort of uh, intersection in which very same similar mechanisms by means of which you create imaginations are nevertheless experienced as if they were remembrances. Understand that there is not a clear distinction between remembering and imagining. There are obvious instances of recollections, there are obvious instances of imaginations, but there is a very wide in-between space. And that in-between space involves not only false memories, but a number of other similar cognitive processes. And nostalgia is one of them. Nostalgia, I think, is, is the kind of cognitive process in which you have a feeling of remembrance, but a lot of the contents toward which you have that feeling are constructed out of things that did happen, but also things that you've read things that you might have imagined in the past, things that media tells you to imagine, and so on. So that's why it is so possible for you to feel nostalgic about events that didn't happen. Yeah. No, uh, well, I would like to welcome to the show Felipe de Brigard. Felipe is an associate professor of philosophy and an associate professor of psychology and neuroscience at Duke University in North Carolina. He also resides as the principal investigator for the Imagination and Modal Cognition Lab at Duke, which works at the intersection of philosophy, psychology, and cognitive neuroscience to ask questions about the nature and function of memory and imagination. 
Felipe, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, so you have you have a very storied academic career yes. uh, in your field from a bachelor's at the University of Columbia, a master's from Tufts University, doctoral from the University of North Carolina, a postdoctoral fellow at Harvard, and now residing at Duke University. Where did, where did it all start? Where did you find the passion to pursue the ideas of philosophy and cognitive neuroscience? Basically, what was the moment that clicked that made you say, I want to do this forever? That's a great question that has a long answer. I didn't know what I wanted to do when I grew up that well. There were certain things that I knew that I liked to do. I have always been a very avid reader. I loved writing. I loved learning about pretty much any area. So I, I, I grew up with ideas of what an intellectual that was all around the kind of like a I wouldn't say a renaissance man because I don't think I have I don't have any artistic ability whatsoever. <laughs> uh, a renaissance man without the artistic ability or the engineering ability. It was just my idea was I want to be someone that knows a lot about lots of different things. Just like a free thinker. Uh, well, my thought was back then uh, when I was a, a teenager, it was someone like a philosopher. That's what a philosopher is. Okay. Uh, you know, a philosopher is a lover of knowledge. And I go like, mm -hmm. wait a second, I love knowledge. So maybe I should become something <laughs> like a philosopher. So in Colombia you have to do a military service when you finish high school. And for various reasons, including the fact that I was, that I was still too young because I graduated from, from high school just when I turned 17, I was supposed to go to a military service, but I was too young and there were a number of issues such that I had basically a year to spare. What am I going to do during this year? So I applied to the public school. And uh, <laughs> this is a funny joke because um, I actually, to, to get into the public school, you need to do an an admission exam. I was interested in philosophy, but I also knew that the admission exam in philosophy was much easier than the medicines <laughs> admission exam. So <laughs> I took it and I got in. So I said like, well, I'm going to enroll in some philosophy classes and so on. And I loved it. I thought that philosophy was the way to go, but I was absolutely convinced that the Universidad Nacional in Bogota was the place I wanted to be mm -hmm. in. And I know that memory is... Uh, uh, deceiving, nostalgically deceiving, but I had the best time of college was <laughs> one of the, it was just the best time for me uh, because I met so many people that were just fascinating. So I wasn't a Renaissance man, but I had a Renaissance group of friends. Everyone was extraordinarily good at their own things. Mm -hmm. And I, it opened up the world for me in a way that I cannot even begin to describe. So I took a lot of philosophy of mind at that, lots of classes in philosophy of mind. And, uh, and at that point, you know, the things that happen when you really breathe philosophy occurred to me. I became an atheist. Like I was definitely changed my view about the divinity and, and, uh, and about the supernatural. Yeah. And as a result, I was much more in need of material explanations of what on earth this mind is. And, and so I started looking into biology and so on. And about, Halfway through my college years, I decided to take uh, classes in neuroanatomy and functional and functional neuroanatomy and and, uh, and neurobiology and so on. So at that point, I thought that if I wanted to really understand how the mind emerges from the brain, I needed to study something brain related. And at that point, I wasn't sure whether I wanted to be a philosopher or a neuropsychologist of sorts. So I decided to apply for a master's uh, in cognitive science and philosophy at Tufts University. And the reason why I did it is because I fell in love with uh, the writings of a philosopher called Daniel Dennett. And Daniel Dennett was a professor or still is a professor at Tufts University. And I was very lucky enough to uh, be accepted there. And he became my teacher. And at that point, again, I wasn't sure if I wanted to be a philosopher or neuroscientist. So when it came the time to apply for PhDs, I asked Dan, you know, what should I do? And Dan asked me, so what do you want to be? Do you want to be a philosopher or neuroscientist? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> so, and they said, okay, let me, let me rephrase the question. Who are the people that you want to hang out with? And I thought that that was just an, um, that was an amazing, interesting, very illuminating way of, of, of thinking about my future. And at that point, I thought the people that I want to hang out with are philosophers that know a lot about science. You know, when you're a philosopher, you're normally told you don't do experiments. Even if you're an empirically minded philosopher, that is to say, even if you're a philosopher that is interested in the sciences, 
you wait for scientists to do the things. Okay. And I was like, why? Yeah. Well, I want to wait. I can do it, right? Exactly. I started learning a little bit on my own and a little bit thanks to to Josh Nope, who was one of the first uh, philosophers that I knew that was doing statistics and so on. And then I was about to graduate and then my advisor said, so what do you want to be? <laughs> and I was like... I don't know. <laughs> no, I like it all. Like some days I want to do philosophy. Some days I want to do science. Some days I want to do neuroscience. I, it was extraordinarily fortunate uh, that Duke said, that's what we need. We need someone who doesn't have to choose. I want. We want someone who can do all those things. Well, I think it's really interesting how, you know, you have that intersection of science and philosophy because like, as you said, you know, and a part of what I do, what I do, having conversations and questioning my own reality by bringing in people with, you know, different opinions, it is so important to kind of... Uh, be more aware of the material world and question the why behind the who, the what, the where, the when. And, and I like the fact that you talked about, you know, I'm going to be spending the rest of my life doing something. So who do I want to surround myself with? That, that's so important as we talk about high school and college is choosing that network of friends and colleagues that first off question, you know, your opinions in a positive manner and grow. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, Nietzsche said at some point, I don't remember exactly where, but said that Thinking is enjoyable. There is something extraordinarily pleasurable about exercising thinking and reasoning and, and, and so on. Uh, you will be surprised, perhaps not, but many of my colleagues, when you ask them, why did you get into philosophy? A lot of them say, because they really like arguing and they like uh, reasoning. To which I always say, well, then you should have gone into law school because of <laughs> the payment is better. Uh, I mean, I, 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 I live in awe by the power of the human mind, you know, for good and for evil as well. I think that always an extraordinary, important motivator for people to pursue things in life. And if you just look inwardly and realize how awesome in the original sense of the term minds are, you just like me, I think, fall in love with the subject. Mm -hmm. Uh, well, listeners, if you'd like to learn more about the research Felipe and his colleagues are involved in at Duke University, you can do so by heading to imclab.org. Once again, that's imclab.org. He can also be found on Twitter at Felipe de Brigard. One last time on Twitter at F-E-L-I-P-E-D-E-B-R-I-G-A-R-D. I don't know if that'll help you, but... <laughs> uh, and as always, those links will be included in the description of this episode and, av and available under Felipe's episode on our website, www.watercoolertalkpod.com. Com. Once again, www.watercoolertalkpod.com. Before we move on, Water Cooler Talk is on a mission to help give back to different parts of the community and those who have helped build our show to where it stands today. For each episode, the guests will bring with them a charity of their choice to represent. On the day of the episode going live, Water Cooler Talk will give a donation to that charity in the guest's name, as well as a global platform to spread a message of love, hope, and togetherness. Felipe, your charity of choice for today's episode is El Centro Hispano of North Carolina. Do you mind explaining a bit more about what they do and the impact they have in the community. Yeah, so the Centro Hispano uh, helps the uh, Latino and Hispanic community in the Carborough Chapel Hill area, which is where I live. I think they do a number of really important services, like helping people from, uh, you know, Latin Americans and, and people of Hispanic origin who are looking for jobs. For instance, they help them to improve their English, and uh, they also help them, to, you know, in the search for jobs. As you know, during the pandemic, the Latino community has been hit really hard, especially in the Durham area. I think that the numbers are staggering. Something like 80% of the new cases of COVID positive are Latino. And the main reason for that is because they are they're what they call essential workers, which is the worst use of essential that I can think <laughs> of. Uh, I agree. It's essential that there are nevertheless felt as disposable. It's just terrible. But so during this time, the Centro Latino has been really helpful uh, for the Hispanic community. They uh, give them, they give free food. They uh, organize uh, free testing for COVID and, and so on. I wish I could do more for them. Uh, in the past, I helped as an interpreter in a, in a clinic that they have for people without insurance. And I just think that what they do is, is just a great job. Well, I very much appreciate you sharing on the show today. Thank you. All right. Are you ready to jump into our final news story of the episode? Absolutely. All right. This is from the New York Times US, March 26, 2016. The NRA reimagines classic fairy tales with guns. 
The world of make-believe can be a scary place full of wolves, trolls, witches, and evil stepmothers, but never fear. Thanks to a series of reimagined fairy tales by the National Rifle Association, the NRA, classic characters like Hansel and Gretel are now packing heat. To bring guns back into the age of classic fairy tales, author and conservative blogger Amelia Hamilton published two updated tales on the NRA family website titled Little Red Riding Hood Has a Gun and Hansel and Gretel have guns, all incredibly creative and original titles. Uh, as of us recording this episode on August 14th, 2020, those gun-wielding fairy tale books have disappeared. On the reasons for writing the books, Hamilton states, It's all about safety. It's for parents to start those conversations. NRA family concluded that readers found the dark overtones of the original fairy tales made them feel uneasy. The new versions by Hamilton are meant to make the Grimm brothers' tales a little less well, grim. For example, in Little Red Riding Hood has a gun, Little Red Riding Hood uses a rifle to scare away the big bad wolf while she skips through the town to deliver food to her sickly grandma. And when the big bad wolf attempts to make a meal of old sickly grandma, grandma distracts the wolf with compliments about his eyes and ears while slowly reaching for her gun. The adaptation reads, the wolf leaned in, jaws open wide, then stopped suddenly. Those big ears heard the unmistakable sound of a shotgun safety being clicked off. Those big eyes looked down and saw that Grandma had a scatter gun aimed right at him. Lad Everett, a spokesman for the Coalition to Stop Gun Violence, stated, There are no consequences for children here holding guns. Walking out into the woods with guns, thinking about killing the bad guy. I do want to point out that in both of the stories, the guns are not discharged. Uh, Everett continues, Children who might read these stories do not have emotional maturity to understand that gun ownership does come with some risk. Amelia Hamilton has pushed back against critics who say her stories advocate arming children. She thought of Hansel, Gretel, and Little, Mi and Little Red Riding Hood as older teenagers who are old enough to be in the woods by themselves and old enough to be hunting by themselves. Hamilton also has plans for her next fairy tale adaption, The Three Little Pigs, and as you can guess, it's titled With Guns. Uh, that story, if published, like the other two have since disappeared as well. So Felipe, I'm, I'm someone who, I support the Second Amendment, obviously not ordinary citizens having wartime machine guns, um, but I do, I do understand just at the basic core principles, I do understand Hamilton's reasoning for rewriting the tales in a way. You know, I think if a parent is a gun owner and they have children in the house, I think it's very, very vital that those, you know, children have some form of gun safety. You know, we hear all these stories about young kids finding guns, which should not be loaded, first off, if they're in the house, and accidentally harming someone. But I also agree with the flip side, mentioning how, you know, the inclusion of guns in classic fairy tales is being used as, as they say, a marketing tactic to create future customers, you know, but we also see that with McDonald's and their Happy Meals, you know, marketing to children obviously is a conversation for a different day. But what I more want our conversation to focus on is the dangers of recreating or outright changing our memories to fit a certain narrative. And your thoughts on the story as well. <laughs> oh, yes. I, mean, I have lots of thoughts on the story. So mm -hmm. as I said, I, uh, I'm not from around here. I moved to the U.S. when I was uh, 22 years old. So I've been living here, uh, you know, for 17 years now. Like, since 2003 is that I've been living in the U.S. So it's been okay. quite some time. And the gun issue is really, is really shocking. It's like, it's a huge cultural difference. And the reason for that is, it's, it's a, first of all, the United States is very unique with their love for guns. But in my case, um, was particularly striking because I, I come from Colombia who was in an in an awful state of violence. I was a kid when Pablo Escobar was bombing everywhere in Bogota mm -hmm. and Medellin. I grew up in in a very, very violent world. It was just it was not fun. We had drills because there were bomb like threats of bombs all the time. We wouldn't go to other people's houses because you don't know if they're going to be bombed or not. Mm -hmm. I have plenty of friends whose parents got either killed or kidnapped at the time. It's just, it was not fun. And all throughout my, uh, the years in which I was growing up, what we saw was campaign after campaign for people to give up their weapons. Only uh, the military personnel could have them. But there is no second amendment. People are not supposed to have guns. So whenever... I met people that had guns and I met some. The first thought that my mind goes to is this person is engaged in some weird business. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So having guns for me was moralized. 
Just like in the United States, smoking sometimes is moralized when you smoke and people go like, oh, you smoke, you must have done something really wrong, which was super weird to me yeah. because we don't moralize smoking or used not to moralize smoking when I was growing up in Colombia. We don't smoke, it's fine. So I was very surprised to see that there was no moralization of guns. So for me, a gun owner who was not a military person or a policeman was someone that that was engaged in weird business. Interesting, in, in, yeah. Uh, right? Mm -hmm. It was never a goal of mine. I, I never imagined having to be in a situation in which, in which owning a gun was desirable. I don't have, how can I put it? I have a visceral reaction to the love and fascination for guns and for the Second Amendment, but I think that it, it is coming really from a point of contrast mm -hmm. through the fact that I grew up having exactly the opposite feeling to our gun ownership. Yeah, when I was growing up, you know, family up north, they hunted. And, yeah. you know, I, I've i worked in Africa where, you know, if you don't have a gun on you, you're going to get eaten. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's one of those things where, like, I grew up around that and it was normalized. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I and when I think about it in those terms, too, I mean, what is, what was the worst predator that I had in Bogota? Like a pigeon? So, like, <laughs> you don't need, like, I could kill it with a spoon, mm -hmm. right? If yeah. I ever have to. And, and I never found in myself in a situation in which I had to kill pigeons. Uh, so obviously there are all these things. And if you live in Maine, used to go to Maine, and once I was driving and there was a bear right next to me and I go like, that's it. That's the end of a leap. Uh, <laughs> right. So I, I totally see why in those circumstances there are. But I think that there are differences between going ownership in those situations mm -hmm. and going ownership just for the for the sake. Uh, and basically, if I call it just for the pleasure of of owning the machine. Yeah, and that's exactly like it's it, it doesn't make sense for you to own, like I said, a wartime machine gun that you would only see in like a world war, you know, and definitely with the NRA right now, like, I don't think they're just a good organization in general, you know, they're what they stole almost 70 million from their own people. For me, it's a lot more about the safety and not the necessity of needing a gun, but I guess not the want. I guess it's more of the necessity of, you know, the safety of guns. I think that's the important thing. And it's like, you can have your guns to a certain extent. Obviously, you don't need these machine guns that can fire, you know, m hundreds of bullets in minutes. But, you know, have your rifles, have, the, you know, the handguns, but do it safely. Do it from a place of safety. I understand why people, especially in the U.S., given the history, I understand why people would like it. But I, I personally don't, don't derive any satisfaction about uh, the experience of having something that could extinguish someone's life. But that being said, I, I love thinking about the, the, the issue because it's just so different from the way in which I grew up yeah. and, my, and my interaction with, with guns. I think that there are uh, lots of risks, uh, obviously, from, from having guns everywhere, and especially when people are more prone to dehumanizing others. Very and, good point. I mean, this, mm -hmm. is, this was the technique in Colombia. When you look at Star Wars, nobody cares about the poor stormtrooper. Storm what if he had a family? Maybe, mm -hmm. you know, who's going to feed the cat of the stormtrooper once Han Solo kills him? That is exactly what they do in uh, Guerrilla. And in the United States, there are so many different groups that try to dehumanize others that uh, having guns is you know super available is an extra component just very very risky no that's like a very very fascinating idea because you know outside of the civil war the u.s has never had that internal conflict all of our wars have been overseas so it's kind of like it's not happening to us it's happening to germans and i think that's a very good point about the stormtroopers you don't really generally think about that other person and you kind of dehumanize them and it, it makes it easier and it, I think that was a very good point. It's extraordinarily easy. That's why those movies uh, you know, the bad guys, you call them the bad guys and what the first thing that you do with the bad guys is dehumanize them mm -hmm. uh, because it's super easy to to kill something that is not human, even if it is a human. Like, real life, of course, is not like that. You know, once again, going back to the power of imagination, of the power of, of uh, political rhetoric, uh, uh, the, the power of propaganda, it is it's extraordinarily easy to confuse the two. And if you push for these kinds of propagandistic strategies to dehumanize others, uh, your imagination takes over. And when you mentally simulate what the other is, the other is not seen as an equal human. When people do, you know, imagine this idea of using a gun to potentially, you know, shoot someone or harm someone, it is. It's, you know, if someone's breaking into my house, I'm not thinking about them as a human. I'm thinking about them as this intruder, this enemy, this, you know, villain. And it, it, it makes sense why people can go to that, take a human life when really, you know, 
all the studies have shown the psychological effects of taking a human life is vast and it, it it's deep. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I I have an, an an anecdote, and I know that we have to go back to the question about the counterfactual thinking and and, uh, and false memories. But I have been thinking a little bit. I, it's not my area of expertise. The the humanization. There is a lot of really amazing research. Mina Sikara at, at Harvard, for instance, has done an unbelievably awesome research on dehumanization. I did have one one experience with with guns that was particularly scary, and I have been thinking a whole lot about it in light of. Uh, Black Lives Matter movements and so on. So I did theater uh, for many years. I was an extraordinarily bad actor, but I <laughs> I loved and 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 I should say I continue to be an extraordinarily bad actor. But I enjoyed the world of acting. So I was working with this the Colombian Corporation of Theater, and they were engaged in this project to sort of uh, reinsert members from gang, like gang members, mm-hmm. you know, that were extraordinarily violent and this thing, and then they were trying. This sort of a service to the community so that members, ex-members of rival bands would uh, sort of work together and do theater together. And it was an awesome thing. Uh, I was very young at the time. I must have been 15 or so. But uh, we went to a party once and a fight ensued. And I tried to break the fight. And one of uh, the kids that I was working with, everyone was a kid, pulled out a gun and put it against my head. And I was like, wow. So that was scary. And I'm probably reconstructing this memory. I, I probably would like peeing in my pants or whatever, but I'm reconstructing it. There was one very important aspect of that event that is sal- salient to me, even to this day, which is that we looked at each other in the eye when this happened. And there was not a single moment in which I thought that this guy was not seeing me as an equal. I did not see at any point that this person was not thinking that I was not human. Mm-hmm. Obviously, he pulled the gun down, that there was people, and then people calmed down. Even though it was extremely scary, it was, I guess, in retrospect, something very reassuring, which is that there was no dehumanization that I could feel. Well, no, I, I very much appreciate you sharing that story. And I think, you know, we talked about it kind of in our last episode with Jake is, you know, a lot of situations specifically in the US have become an us versus them, not a, you know, let's do this together to figure out the solution, but it's become an us versus them. And a lot of the time, it's about dehumanizing that other side to make it easier to attack them. Exactly. And I think it's a dangerous precedent that's being set by specifically, you know, this current administration, there needs to be a move forward towards more positive communication between two sides. It shouldn't be us versus them anymore. It needs to be, hey, we're all Americans, you know, we're all from have roots in this country and we have things to care about in this country. So why can't we move forward together? It might be a little bit forced, but this is a a sideway onto talking again about false memories and counterfactual thinking is the power of imagination is is just extraordinary. There is an, an enormous amount of, of hypothetical thinking that goes on at all times. We are used to thinking about the mind as 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 this mechanism that has segregated and separated faculties. But if you think about it, that's just not how the mind works. Uh, my discipline, cognitive science, basically assumes that the mind has part. It has mechanisms that are decomposable into further mechanisms, and uh, that's a, a big theoretical struggle for me because it's extraordinarily difficult to separate it. We have words for different things that we do with our minds. We have words for attention. We have words for perception. We have words for audition. But what we see is that they are all continually interlocked. Where do memory ends and perception starts? Where do memory ends and imagination starts? At what point uh, motor control becomes just imagining? So suppose that uh, you're you're tapping your finger like this, and at some point you stop tapping your finger, but you still like sort of feeling that you're exercising the tapping of the finger. Are those two entirely different faculties? Cognitive processes bleed into one another through and through. And the one sort of interface that I study of memory and imagination started off precisely because I was supremely interested in false memories. I have tons of false memories. And so does everyone else. I, I cherish them when I happen. So there is, the, I, I like when these queer mental things happen to me, like the I think that people relate to, do you know, the tip of the tongue experience? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So like, ah, it's amazing. I love it. And it is 
and, and the thing that I love the most is that I know what is the worst thing that you can do, which is what everyone tries, which is to, I think it starts with B. The name starts with B. <laughs> that generates a process called blockage. And it usually never starts with B. And it makes it extremely difficult for you to come up with a name. So usually the solution for that is to not think about it. And then all of a sudden it pops into your mind, which I find fascinating. It's like, you see, by not helping you, I came up with the right name. So when I was in grad school, I was sort of, Remember, I came from a philosophical background that tells me that memory and imagination are entirely different faculties. And I was like, this is nuts. This just cannot be true. It's not that when I have a false memory, I really meant to imagine it, but somehow I forgot that I was imagining. I, it, was, it just didn't make sense. It seemed mm-hmm. to me that it was much more parsimonious to say that there were shared cognitive processes, that the memory was doing what it was supposed to be doing, which is to sort of co-opt some of the processes that imagination uses. But there was something interesting about false memories, which is the fact that they are very systematic. So here is an example, and I'm going to presume that this is true of you. It's very likely for you to falsely recall that you parked your car next to a green car when in reality it was a red car. You didn't pay a lot of attention. Mm -hmm. But it is very unlikely for you to falsely recall that you won the lottery. That seems unusual. Nobody falsely remembers that. So I was very interested in this distinction. And I started working a little bit on, on whether I could create experiments and also sort of computational models that would enable me to predict what people are going to false alarm to later on. In other words, what people are going to falsely remember later on. And basically, what your memory system is trying to do when they try to remember something is not really to reproduce exactly what happened in the past. That's not what memory tries to do. Memory is not a reproduction system. It's not a system that with fidelity brings back to mind exactly what happened in the past. No, no, no. What memory is trying to do is to solve what statisticians and computer scientists call an inverse problem. Oftentimes, you have a bunch of information and you want to know where that information came from. So what you do is you try to reconstruct the what must have been the cause of this set of information that you have. I think that memory does something along those lines. When when we talk about false memory, you know, or you know, gaslighting and like dating situations or, you know, political situations. Why do, why do people use those? Why am I thinking that for gaslighting example, you know, basically what I want to say, is it about control? Is it like, do we need to feel in control of our memories? I don't know to what extent we do it voluntarily. Mm -hmm. So many of our false memories are involuntary uh, in part, because as I was trying uh, to suggest when you when you try to remember something, what you do is you try to reconstruct it. Okay. And what the memory does is this notion of reconstruction, which is widely used in, in psychology, I think is for me, it's just the beginning of an explanation. I want to understand what does it mean to reconstruct the memory? Basically, what the memory system is trying to come up with the most likely event that would have brought about this memory. Mm. That insight is what got me like, wait a second. Your memory system is trying to generate what philosophers call counterfactuals. Your memory system might not always tell you exactly what happened, but it tells you what it is most likely that could have happened. So that's what brought me into interactions between false memories and counterfactual thinking. There is quite a bit of research on false memories in which the big, the big effects when people manage to implant false memories, you generate a imagination that is extraordinarily consistent with your beliefs, that is extraordinarily consistent with what you know about yourself. Mm -hmm. And then later on, your chances of it becoming a memory of what happened in the past are just exponentially big. However, if I ask you to imagine something that it is really absurdly or very inconsistent with your past, like when I'm going to assume that you have never won the lottery, Mm -hmm. you don't misremember those things because they are so out of any possibility that it is likely to have occurred to you in the past. To go back to to the question of how do people use it to manipulate it, we know that you can use imagination to influence what you remember. Likewise, I would imagine uh, happens with propaganda and happens with uh, political rhetoric and so on. So notice that it has to be so fine-tuned. You cannot tell people, make a great America great again means we're going to go back to flying uh, flying cars and at the time in which milk uh, run free on the rivers. That, that never happened. It has to be the imagination that people need to generate has to be plausible enough. It has to be believable, yeah. It has to be believable. It has to be, it has to, not only that, it has to be 
believable for you. No, I think I think that's a really good idea because, like as you mentioned, you know, make America great again. It tends to be supported by older conservatives because they look back on the 1950s, 1960s, and you know, on the TV it was advertised as the white picket fence and the lovely housewife and the boy and the girl. They may have not experienced that actually for themselves, but that was the idea of that. So when it's you know, make America great again. The idea that they connect with is I want to go back to that time, this nostalgic moment, and live that even though I may not have lived that. Yes, you're right. A lot is is moved by people that felt that they were better then than they are now, Mm -hmm. that lived through that process and so on. But just it's just like the high school example that I gave you. They would hate going back. It it would not match with their imagination of of what they're feeling nostalgic about. And the second point is... uh, don't be misled by the fact that by thinking that it is only older people that have this nostalgia. There is an enormous amount of younger people that never lived that past that still feel nostalgic about that past. And the reason, or at least one of the main reasons for that, why that happens is again, because they're hijacking their imagination with all this false information about how the past was. They don't feel that they are as happy now as they could be given all this information that they are being feeding with and they are creating these mental simulations uh, with. But in addition to that, there is no knowledge against which to contrast those mental simulations. Could, you know, when we look at false memory, could the solution be the de-escalation of misinformation? Because, you know, as you talk about, you kind of mentioned like the Mandela effect, you know, the fact that people thought Nelson Mandela yes, had right. died in prison when he died out of prison in 2013. How, how do you work towards not having these false, you know, memories by correctly informing society when you have people that say, I don't want people to be informed. I mean, I know that's the, that's the billion dollar question. <laughs> yeah, I, that's a billion dollar question, but it's also the million, the million centuries old answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, if there is one grain of pure faith in me, is that education is the best way to counteract this tricks of propagandistic nostalgia and false mem- uh, false information and and uh, and so on this is exactly what what socrates was facing when he was at the tribunal uh right and he was accused of being a heretic and and, and uh, uh, corrupting the jews i always i love going back and reading plato's uh, socrates apology and i always think of, of socrates saying like Look, if there is an act of faith I have done is, is, is the act of, of thinking that people should live examined lives. You need to be able to think critically of yourself. Boy, do I have this very entrenched belief in me? Why? And it's super hard. This is, this is the part that, that it is just so tricky. You know, we have on the one side that I was telling you, Nietzsche saying, uh, thinking is pleasurable, but sometimes it's not. Uh, sometimes examining and thinking, boy, I'm wrong and I need to relinquish this belief is not a fun process. The only, for me at least, is the only way in which you're going to become better people that you are going to, you know, you're going to have a better future. I think politicians know it. You, you, I think that, yeah, that yeah. they, mm-hmm. and it is hard because as, you know, as a, as a teacher, I've been a teacher all my life and I hope to be a teacher all my life. I want that. I want what Socrates thought that it was worth living for. Uh, I need, I think that that's the strategy for creating better societies. It is that like I've, you know, say it from day one, you know, education is key. And I think it's important that education remains creative as well. You know, we've talked about like sometimes academic papers, they're just boring. And it's just like, I don't want to read this. Oh, yeah. But then, you know, hopefully people are listening to conversations like we're having. And it, it, it's fun to listen to these conversations and have these these talks, but you're still learning something. And I think that's the important thing for, you know, education. I mean, I'm not a teacher or professor, you know, so I won't speak to that. But, you know, remaining creative and finding fun ways, because generally, I believe in the good of people and I believe that people want to learn and want to be better and want to, you know, love themselves and love the people around them. But we have so much crap coming at us that it it is tough to be that sometimes. And so people are sometimes looking for a fun way to be a better human being, even though, you know, you would say just being a better human being should be good enough for you. You know, that's asking a lot of the everyday person who may not have the same 
So it is. I think it's important that when it comes to educating yourself, you find fun ways to do it or you're going to get burnt out. If you're just constantly reading academic papers and you don't enjoy that, you're going to be like, well, this isn't fun. It is. It's important to have a, a, a well-rounded education. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one thing that I, I think is fundamental is the humanities. Like, uh, I, I just cannot even begin to fathom how could you have an examined life as a well-rounded life without learning history and and uh, without learning literature, uh, without just knowing where you came from as a person and not like as a laborer in the uh, <laughs> you you know in a capitalist society. Mm-hmm. You're way more than that. You you like again it's part of what I was saying at the beginning. You just look introspectively for a second and you go, holy moly! Like I am the only thing around here that can talk that can engage in this why like what is the history that brought about this thing that when i close my eyes is so awesome you know i th- i think you're exactly right i mean academic papers suck like they <laughs> they are i don't awful. i don't mean to offend anyone who's listening who is like oh i love these <laughs> yeah. now you are not offending anyone there are lots of forces, soci- sociological forces that end up making papers look like that. A lot of the reason why that happened is, and, and I kid you know, is word limits. Journals have extraordinarily strict word limits. And if you want to say something extremely complex, then you latch onto terminology that carries along with it bits of theory. Uh, and you eliminate any, there is no place for nuance. There is no place for literature. And it has a lot to do with word limits. Now, you read the old papers, uh, you know, in psychology and in nursing, they were fun to read. Now we don't have that much freedom, in part because because of these word limits. Uh, Felipe, thank you for taking the time to share your perspective on some of the strangest and most interesting news stories the world has to offer in a productive and meaningful conversation. If you would like to learn more about the research Felipe and his colleagues are involved in at Duke University, you can do so by heading to imclab.org. Once again, that's imclab.org. Uh, over the past few days, as I said, I got all these notes. I've had the pleasure to kind of read through your research and papers and uh, very interesting stuff on, you know, memories and imagination interacting. Uh, so I highly recommend anyone who's interested in, you know, the talk we have to go check out what you're doing over there in North Carolina. Uh, he can also be found on Twitter at Felipe de Brigard. One last time on Twitter at Felipe de Brigard. And as always, those links will be included in the description of this episode and available under this episode on our website at watercoolertalkpod.com. Once again, www.watercoolertalkpod.com. Uh, I want to talk about Robert Nozick's, his idea of utopia and the experience machine, the experience machine being the idea of a machine that is able to give an individual whatever desirable or pleasurable experience they could want. And those desires and pleasures would be indistinguishable from those same concepts I would experience in real life. And then, you know, through his thought experiment, he asked the question, would an individual prefer the machine to real life? And you correct me if I'm wrong in this, but you challenge that idea presented by others, basically saying that regardless of if our life was real or simulated, we would find it difficult to leave the life we had been living. You know, to me, that idea makes sense. You know, I would want to stay in that life I created. But how does the science behind that decision come to light as we question if life is just one giant matrix-esque simulation? That was one of the very first papers that I I wrote. Um, So I've never, I actually have never read Robert Nozick until I took a class with this philosopher I told you, Josh. No, this apparently was a very famous thought experiment. The the idea of the thought experiment, the idea behind the thought experiment was uh, to argue against hedonism, hedonism being the view according to which what we take to be good or the source of of our normativity is pleasure. We seek pleasure, right? Mm -hmm. Hedonism is a sort of a very, or was, I guess, a sort of a very popular uh, view in, in, in ethics and so on. And Nozick wanted to challenge that by saying, look, if all we care about was pleasure, then if someone offered you this experience machine where you can just plug into and you have designed this amazing world and, and so on, and you just plug into, everyone would say yes. But, and this is something that philosophers do, is that intuitively, no one really wants to plug in. And I read it and I was like, this is absurd. <laughs> everyone wants to get into the experience machine. People do drugs all the time. Everyone gets wasted on Sundays. And, no, wait, mm-hmm. Saturdays, whatever it is when they, people get wasted. Hey, Sunday is every day now. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, we're in this eternal Friday. So I thought this is absurd. Like, of course, that people want to plug in and people want to avoid their reality. Uh, My guess is that people are going to, that that, that the responses to the experience machine are going to vary 
as a function of how they see their lives right now. Of course, it's, it's very uh, difficult to test it that way. But basically, what I was thinking at the time, and this was uh, actually came from a conversation with uh, my professor Josh Nob and uh, psychologist, uh, psychologist uh, Dan Gilbert uh, at Harvard. We actually he was a guest speaker at Chapel Hill, and we went to dinner and said, "Like I have this idea." So, like I think I want to do an experiment in which I can control for reality. Nozick's thought was. People prefer reality to pleasure. And my thought was, I think that people prefer what they know, whether it is real or not. So uh, inspired a little bit by the Matrix, uh, I just came up with this sort of vignette. And it's like, imagine that everything that you know up until now is uh, is just in the Matrix, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't use that term, but that, that was the idea. The thought is like, uh, Morpheus comes at some point. It's not exactly, it's inspired by that, but I, I used different verbiage. I actually, believe it or not, I controlled for whether students have seen the matrix or not because i only wanted to okay <laughs> uh, and uh, and whenever i say this uh you know i could i did that study 2008 2009 it was not that difficult to find students that have never seen the matrix first off because they were too young to have seen it in the theater uh and a lot of them just weren't interested at all because the effects are just not as cool and i was like what in the matrix too but anyways <laughs> so i i sort of gave this uh this, this example and I basically uh, control for three tr- conditions. In one condition, said like your your life would be indistinguishable from what you have now. In another condition, it's like your life is super awful. Uh, and I gave some description. I forgot exactly some description of what your life in reality was. And in another condition, it was like uh, your life is amazing. And I think that I also did another experiment in which I didn't say anything about their real life. And basically, what happens? What you would expect, right? Um, if their life was the same, they would go for reality. If their life was awful, they would prefer to stay connected. And if they were life was good, uh, I think that it was like a, a mix. But importantly, when they didn't say anything, some people re- wanted to remain connected, and some people wanted to change. And this pattern of results, what ex- was extraordinarily easy to fit with some theories in behavioral economics, in which people are risk averse or or risk takers. And basically what I ended up sort of showing is that what motivates people to either connect or not connect is what behavioral economists call status quo bias. They prefer the status quo. They prefer what is known. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of the, the, the end point of the, of the result. We, we like what we know. We like what we're familiar with. We're at, yes. Right? Yes. And whether it is real or not, uh, it doesn't. Uh, really matter. No, I thought it was so interesting to bring up because this is exactly what we talked about at the end of our episode, you know, with Jake. Uh, So it is interesting to kind of see that once again, come back and to be able to talk about it again. So I appreciate you uh, sharing that. Mm -hmm. Uh, As always, thank you to my listeners for listening to another episode of Water Cooler Talk, the only such podcast on the internet, hosted by myself and guest hosted today by Felipe, where we take the strangest and most interesting real life news stories from around the world and just try and have a good old conversation about some of the ideas discussed in those bizarre news stories. And once again, ladies and gentlemen, if you'd like to reach out to the show with a local news story, or if you just want to share some of your own comments, you can do so at watercoolertalkpod at gmail.com or by connecting with us on Instagram at watercoolertalkpod. And as I mentioned a few times, you can always find all of our content centralized on our website at www.watercoolertalkpod.com from any of the links mentioned in an episode, past episodes, social media posts, and much, much more. Felipe, we are at my favorite part of the episode where I hand the show over to you uh, to close out the show. So the floor is yours. However, however you seem fit. We talked about lots of things in this episode, right? We talked a little bit about my research on nostalgia. Uh, we talked a little bit about my research on false memories and each relation, their relation to counterfactual thinking. We talked about guns. We talked about dehumanization. Uh, we talked about propaganda. I guess th- the one thing that I would like to highlight is, I mean, all those aspects are uh, are fascinating and, and, and uh, interesting. I, of, of course, I dedicate my life to many of them. <laughs> but the one thing that I would probably like to highlight is, is this uh, Socratic motto that I was uh, saying before about the importance of having a life that is worth living and how profoundly connected it is with education. I think we should all strive to be our best selves. And often that requires discomfort. Often that requires relinquishing beliefs we were not willing to relinquish. And because I love anecdotes, I'm going to actually close up with an anecdote. Back when I was in grad school, I taught a class at Elon University, a winter session class at Elon University in North Carolina. It's a critical thinking class. 
And I like to start my class on critical thinking by asking my students to think of a, of a belief that they will be completely unwilling to give up. So as you might expect, a lot of my students, mm-hmm. and there are lots of reasons why that happens, right? God uh, and the supernatural and so play lots of emotional roles that are difficult to feel with something else. But there was this one student that said, the deepest belief that I have is that I think doctors should be updated in their research. And I was like, what? And then she went on to tell me a story or tell us all a story about how she has this uh, autoimmune disease that is extraordinarily difficult to understand. And she was misdiagnosed constantly and constantly and constantly. And she was in this state in which no one really knew what was going on with her. And a lot of that was because the doctors that she had seen have basically not keep updated with the science. And that led me to think, I said, like, first of all, I've never thought of that at all. And second of all, I just realized that Beliefs are things that can be very entrenched in us because uh, we can be, they can become extremely important. And that belief, I, I think that belief is an amazing belief. And I totally understand why they could play those, those uh, vital roles in, in people. The power of particular beliefs to be entrenched and unassailable or felt as unavailable for us is extremely powerful. And just as, as we have typical examples of beliefs in God and stuff like that, there are lots of beliefs that could be very nefarious and very bad that could become entrenched in us. And I am a firm believer. <laughs> That's a belief that perhaps is unassailable, but if there has a, wor- a belief that is unassailable is that we should always try our best to question them. I guess that that's what I will finish with. We should strive to have a reflective life and a, and a life that, that is examined. It's not always easy, but it's worthwhile. Well, I very much appreciate you coming on the show. I very much appreciate the conversation, sharing a bit about yourself. You know, these these are some of my favorite conversations because we can talk about Little Red Riding Hood. And then, as you mentioned, we talk about all these other things. So thank you for that. Thank you very much. Uh, but until next time, listeners, peace. This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not. Because they're real. What an episode. What a guest. What a time. Thank you once again to Felipe for calling into the studio to talk about those strange and interesting news stories. Uh, Seriously, listeners, if you guys have any interest in what we talked about in this episode, take a moment to just read over some of the research Felipe and his team are doing in their lab at Duke University. Or, you know, if you want to connect with Felipe directly, maybe enjoy a pun or two, you can do so by following him on Twitter at Felipe de Bricard. Also, make sure to support Felipe's charity of choice for today's episode, El Centro Hispano. All it takes is $5, the price of a coffee, to help make a difference. And of course, helping out can even be as easy as telling a friend about a new cause around the water cooler, wherever those dang water coolers may appear. But anyways, to the corrections! In the first story discussing why we watch the same TV shows and movies over and over again, Felipe mentioned a book by Robert Sapolsky. The title of the book is Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. I had a chance to read through the notes on the book, and the focus is how zebras and wild animals don't have stress-related disorders that humans have, like ulcers, because wild animals don't have to worry about human-type things like child abuse, the chronic stress of poverty, being in a pandemic, so on and so on. The, you know, the obvious stress of being eaten by a predator they have that stress. But interesting enough, all that vanishes once the predator is no longer an eyesight. Very, very interesting concept. In the second story discussing Little Red Riding Hood, packing some uh, major heat, I mentioned that you need a gun in Africa or you're going to be eaten. Now, I want to be very clear on this. That's not true. Obviously, that was a bit of a hyperbole. Uh, Much of the work being done in regards to animal conservation is about respect towards the animal and the habitat, with one of those tenants being respectful of space. Wild animals normally want nothing to do with humans. 99.9% of the time, if they haven't already ran away, they'll tell you that. And it's important to respect that warning and leave or move away from the area. Guns in those situations are merely last, last, last resort options. And then I wanted to leave a quick update on the NRA. Uh, Despite where you stand on the conversation about the Second Amendment, 
the NRA has been proven to be a seedy organization that has stolen millions out of the pockets of its own members. Once again, when I say fuck the NRA, this has nothing to do with gun ownership. This is about a nonprofit organization, the leaders in that organization, using funds for their own personal gain, stealing money from their members, from their own members, so they can live a life of luxury. Simple. All right, Water Coolings, that's another Corrections Corner. Thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to another episode of Water Cooler Talk. Once again, thank you to Felipe for calling into the studio and talking about some of the strangest and most weirdest news stories the world has to offer. But anyways, that's your Corrections. That's your simulation. So I'm blind. This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not because they're real. <laughs>